Good morning, brethren. We are finishing up the Pentateuch this morning, the last of the five books of Moses. Excited to teach this book this morning. I've actually never, never surveyed the book of Deuteronomy that I can recall, so this was fun studying for it. As always, it's very tough to take lots of chapters, distill it, get it down into something that'll go in around 40 minutes. To be fair, this book, as you'll see in, in a few minutes, the structure is built around three sermons of Moses. So can you imagine, I mean, I, I kind of read through the book, I thought it took around three hours. It was three different sermons, mind you, but one of them was like from chapter 4 to chapter 26. So I don't think, they, I don't think Moses was in any rush to get through the sermon, but in any case, um, this morning we are looking at Deuteronomy, the second law and second chances. We're going to look at how God showed mercy on Israel, even though they had rebelled uh, and exhibited a lack of faith obedience to his commandments to go in to take the land. That generation was judged, but God showed mercy by allowing another generation to raise up, to be raised up, to take their place, to go in in obedience. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much uh, for the words of this, this book of Deuteronomy. Thank you for your servant Moses that continues to be just a great example of godliness and character, a man of uh, faith and perseverance and patience as he, um, he worked with several generations of your people Israel. And we see in this book the, the passion of his heart to see them blessed and we pray lord this this morning that we might draw out some lessons that we might think generate generationally about our own faith about our failures as as parents as we are just simple and failing people from time to time and and yet you are merciful you you take the good that we deposit into our children or grandchildren and you can you can bless them. You can extend blessings down, even in our, our failing attempts. Thank you for the hope that's in this book. Thank you for the warnings. Thank you for the way that your holiness is, is lifted up, that we might respect, reverence, and fear you as you are due. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Deuteronomy is about seconds. And no, I'm not talking about Thanksgiving meal this morning, although that's not too far away. It's about the second giving of the law, the second opportunity to enter the land of promise, a second extension of the covenant to a second generation of children who have now taken their parents' and their grandparents' place. As I think about this book, I think about the passing of time and what the people lived through who received these words. Think about it. These are people that were under 20 years old they they lived through as children young people the the plagues of egypt the deliverance the red sea the pillar of cloud the pillar of fire they also lived through a lot of very intense judgment on their parents and their grandparents for their disobedience for the rebellion if you think the adults trembled at sinai when the lightning flashed and the, and the earth shook. What was that like for a child? 
Those are the people who are our audience for Deuteronomy. They've also seen their parents and their grandparents pass away over the years. They are now the oldest generation. There are only really a few old people left by the time we come to Deuteronomy. We got Caleb, and we have Joshua, and we have Moses. Aaron's died, Miriam's died. Some of the priests that were of Aaron's line, they have died and younger have taken their place. I think about from whom they received these messages. Moses, the oldest man among them, 120 years old. How over a period of one month, he would speak passionately about remembering the past and learning from their forefathers' sin and rebellion. About a new purpose of subduing and living in the land of promise and accepting the full responsibilities of being adults and holy people in this land that God had promised to them. And finally, the faithful and venerable prophet would warn and bless the people before handing the reins of leadership over to Joshua to lead them in conquest. If you look at the end of Numbers, and we'll look at some of that as we begin in Deuteronomy, there is some conquest that's already happened on the east side of the Jordan, and we'll look at that shortly. But Deuteronomy, just the basics, we see the authorship is Moses, and then, of course, you know, Moses didn't write his own obituary, probably. Joshua probably had a little bit to do with chapter 34. The purpose was to prepare a new generation for the work of conquering and possessing the land of promise. Conquering and possessing. We would think the conquering part would be a big deal, and I was actually thinking about using a kind of the concept of what went on prior to D-Day over in England. But no, that was a little bit different because God says, I'm going to go forward and conquer for you. Basically, you just have to show up. I'm going to drive these people out. I'm going to put the fear and the dread of you upon the people. It was basically just going to be a mop-up campaign if the people had the faith and the ter- determination to just obey God and walk forward. The structure is, as I said, built around three sermons of Moses to the people. The first sermon, as we'll see, is what God has done. It's historical. It's chapters 1 through 4, 43. The second sermon is what God expected of Israel. That's the legal portion of the book. That's chapter 4, 44 to 26, 19, and God's basically laying out, this is how a society that represents me should operate. And then finally, a third sermon is a look forward. It's prophetic. And that's in chapter 27 to the end of the chapter. It basically states prophetically what God will do for this nation, even including their failures, how he's going to redeem that, how he's going to put them back. And we saw this back when we were in the study of Daniel. We looked at the Palestinian covenant. We'll come back to that shortly. There's a second set of structure, and that's the fact that this book, if you were to dig into it and get some commentaries, at this period of time, around 1400 BC, there were also in areas around there uh, certain kinds of covenantal treaties between, between nations, between a ruler and their people. And this book of Deuteronomy somewhat follows that same kind of format. 
in this formal treatise that reestablishes the covenant between God and his called out people. That is, the progress of the layout of the book is of a certain formality. And it starts with the preamble, it starts with basically the promises, the duties, the expectations, and then it ends with the people accepting the terms of the covenant. And that's what we find in chapter 27 and following, where the people basically are saying, hey, we accept all the curses if we disobey, as well as we are open-armed to the blessings if we do obey. And God says, yes, I will confirm those things. And then there's finally the transition of the, the mediator responsibilities from from Moses to Joshua as they go in and live that covenant out. There, there are some great themes in this book. Concept of blessings and cursings we just mentioned. The words teach, listen, obey, hear, are 50 times in the book. Do, keep, and observe, 177 times in the book. It, it gets monotonous almost. That Again and again and again and again, God's saying, just listen, just do this, just obey. I have such great things for you. Don't forget. Don't forget. And this idea that the stories, the experiences of, of even the people that have passed over these 38 to 39 years, that they should be remembered as well. As I look at the book, I think about the relationship between these generations, the ones that have passed and I put some, I picked some quotes about children I think that might be apropos. Anna Quinlan says, your children make it impossible to regret your past. And I know that statement probably has some holes in it. But I think I understand what she's saying. They're its finest fruits and sometimes the only ones. Your children might be your only fruits. You know, we're no, none of us are promised prosperity, abundance, we don't live under the same kind of covenant that Israel had with God. But I think in the heart of most parents, there are neglectful parents. Yes, there are parents who are drug addicts. Yes, there are some exceptions, but on the whole, I think most parents want to do better by their kids. They want to hand down something to them that's lasting and valuable, and it's not money. It's lesson, experience, wisdom. I got to believe that these people that were judged that were not going to be allowed to go in the land of promise had that same kind of sense for their kids. That they wanted them to do better than they did. We come to this section and we see this stark reminder, God stating what has already come to pass back in Numbers then the Lord heard the sound of your words, that is that previous generation. He was angry and took an oath, saying, Not one of these men, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore to give your fathers. In chapters 1 and part of chapter 2, we have a rehearsal, a rehearsal of their parents' failure to obey and the consequences that came from that. God basically says in summary, this is how it went for your parents, for your grandparents, anyone that was older than 20 years of age. And if you go back there and you look, you can see that there was a quick repentance. When they disobeyed, they turned around and they said, oh God, we changed our mind. Let's go up and take the land. And God said, I'm not with you. 
you, you had your chance. I mean, we talk about second chances, but sometimes we are not personally the recipients of the second chance. Maybe it's our kids. God's holiness should be noted. We should understand that God is only patient for so long. And in the book of Hebrews, there are certain kinds of sins that that generation had. And one of them, God says to believers who were also of that lineage in the New Testament in Hebrews, he says, beware lest there be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief and falling away from your living God. Don't, don't doubt God. He does not lie. He keeps his covenant. Just listen and obey. Well, the other thing that we see in this section is there was a foretaste there was a foretaste of what is to come as they obey and conquer east of the Jordan. It's interesting that, if I read it correctly, it took not all the 40 years for that generation to die. They mostly died out by year 38. And the reason why is God was clearing, clearing the deck so that you think some of these people, that if they were 21 or older than 20, they were able to go in. They would now be 59 or 60, which... You know, dawns on me. But they will be the old people, basically. They will be the oldest, except for those three people I mentioned. And they had to now exhibit faith obedience. And so God gives them the opportunity to go into the east side of the Jordan, which is also part of the promised land, but we often think the promised land is on the west side after you cross the Jordan. But this was actually still part of the property that God said was going to be theirs. And they had the opportunity to go through that area. Now, the first place they entered to the south was some property that was not to be conquered because that property was given by covenant to God to the sons of Lot, Ammon and Moab, and also to Jacob's brother Esau, who were the Edomites. And it's interesting, God makes a special point to say, respect your extended family and their heritage. Don't think this is all yours. I've also spoken and given things to these people. And don't trouble yourself by picking a fight with your cousins. Interesting. There's a whole thing there. You should read it. And don't create unnecessary enemies. And this is even after some of the people kind of did not treat them right in their wanderings. Some of these same people. God says, look, you can go buy some things. You're passing through. You take some provisions. These are your family. Later, he says in chapter 23, they are not allowed into the holy assembly, even some of them of the Edomites, not till they get to the fourth generation. The first three generations, if they decide to come along with you, the first three generations are not included in worship. Not till they stick it out till four generations. Interesting. God says, don't bother them. But there are the Amorite kings, Sihon and Og. These are the first victories over the first giants that they encounter. Matter of fact, it looks like some of these people might have been pretty big people, if you read there. And they're the giants that, that their forefathers were afraid of. They didn't listen to the word of God. They looked at the circumstances. They didn't believe God was big enough to take down the giants. They go in and they conquer Sihon, whose kingdom was Heshbon, and Og, whose kingdom was Bashan. And these were, when you think kingdom, these were like territory, city-states, basically of a bigger Amorite nation. 
And they have victories. They obey God. It says they wiped them out, even down to the children. They only took the spoil of their livestock and other things. They obeyed. They did what God called them to do. And then we see that as that is settled, the first settlements for the two and a half tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh, that's their property. And they start to go in and take over and take over the vineyards and the, and the fruit trees and the crops and the cities, and they start to settle there. And of course, if you go back to Numbers, they settled their families, and the leaders of those tribes said, hey, we're going to go in and fight with you. We're crossing over the Jordan. Just let us get our, our women and children settled in place and know that they're safe. We'll come do our part. We'll be a part of the army as well. And so you see this great relationship. You see what God is doing as these people begin to take out his word and go in to conquer. That gives them some great sense of confidence and, and sense of God's leading, and it prepares them to fulfill the rest of the conquest. In the second sermon, and by the way, these sermons all took place in a period of about 30 days. John Kennedy says, children are the living messages we send to a time we will not see. That's so true. That's exactly what that generation that was judged was doing. Their descendants, their children, their grandchildren would go into the future. And they needed to be the right kind of people for the long haul. And so what we have in this legal section, what God expected of Israel, is that there is going to be some definition of what it looks like to be a holy people. You see this passage that we have here, it kind of came out of the first section, but I think it speaks to what is going on in this section. Chapter 4, verse 5 says, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him? They were to be the city on the hill. They were to be unique among all these pagan nations. Why? Because they needed to know who the real God was among all their idols. God always had a redemptive plan in mind. And Israel was supposed to be the, the mouthpiece, the living evidence. That there is one and only one God, the creator of heaven and earth, the Lord Jehovah, who raises up a nation out of one man and turns it into a great nation that can't be numbered like the stars of heaven. And they were supposed to live in an exemplary way. One, it would be for their benefit, but two, it was meant to draw and create a jealousy among the pagans to say, that is the God that we should follow. It's interesting that along the way, Israel did accept, as you read Deuteronomy, Israel did accept, there were some, if you look at it, there were actually some Egyptians that came along with Israel. Do you know that? There were some people as they wandered in the wilderness that said, can we join up with you? And God talks about the sojourner and the alien and the person that's not blood, but who is willing to fear me and come along and worship me as an outsider. 
God's always had that redemptive heart, even outside the fold of Israel. That's why Jesus was so upset in the Gospels when the Pharisees and scribes wanted to put the boundaries around it so tightly. And Jesus constantly picked outsiders to show amazing things when they came to him humbly and in brokenness and repentance and faith. God's heart was to use Israel to reach that. Well, in chapter 5, we see the restatement of the Ten Commandments. In chapter 6, very famous, the Shema, this idea that not only, you know, hey, do we have them in the Ark of the Covenant, but we're supposed to open it up. We're supposed to teach them. And we have in this, this great passage, chapter 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these things which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them around your hand, around your forehead, write them on the doorposts of your house, your gates. And basically, this is a teaching learning environment that's in the family. A lot of us that are homeschooled, this is a very impressive kind of, impressive not like, like high flute, but impressive like, this is a passion that struck me deeply as a a young man and a prospective father is we need all the time we can to get this across to our kids and some of us by conviction have decided to homeschool our kids and that's fine but it's the idea that that all of life needs to be an audio visual of the glory of God and we be calling our kids again and again to look at it this idea of studying and teaching and doing practicing you know your life being a greater impact than even your words as you do these things and in the second section there's an exposition of the national laws and these are broken down into ceremonial law for the for a religious nation in other words remember israel is a theocracy they had an invisible leader to start with of course god anticipated that was going to change and he speaks to that but they had, they had a leader, and this was a religious nation. And these laws that are talked about in chapter 12 to chapter 16 talk about how God wants to be worshipped by a nation that has religious observance infused into its bloodline. Each of these, the, whether it's the ceremonial law, the civil laws, the social law, I just want to, having had this election this past week, I, I just want to encourage you, if you don't know, American history well you should dig back into our forefathers we should be grateful that they were not all believers and I'm not saying that at all but they were God-fearing people and it's interesting if you look at how they began to hammer out our constitution and the laws that flowed from it they went right to the book of Deuteronomy it, the fingerprints of our our constitution are all over this book and they tried to put in place do you, do you realize that I'm old, I'm 60, but when I was a, when I was a young kid, they, in, Mar- in the state of Maryland, they have what they call blue laws. Do you realize it was hard to go to a restaurant on a Sunday because they were closed, and people were saying, that's God's day. I mean, that really was the way life was. You went home and you had dinner because there wasn't many places open. Every rare time there was. That's 
That's 1970. That's 50 years ago. I know that's a long time for some of you, but it doesn't seem like a long time to me where things just changed and changed and changed. There was a consciousness that whether people understood it or not, the laws were on the books. This is how things should be. And that was part of the heritage of people that wrote the laws of our land and were God-fearing people. We have the idea of civil law for a righteous and just nation. This is, God expected people to rule among themselves as he would rule among them. And so he gave them these laws in chapter 16 to 20. And that explains about the kind of people that should rule and the process by which they should execute justice. Man, God deliver us back to that kind of standard for the people that hold public office. Who knows if it will ever, ever happen again, and if we ever find people, I don't care what their party is, but if they're that kind of person who hate a bribe, not that they won't take one, they hate it. They hate the idea of using that power for their own personal benefit because they're public servants. And God says a lot about the kind of people should be judges and rulers and make decisions on behalf of people. And then there's social law for a compassionate nation. That's how the law, the second half of the Decalogue, how it works its way out in loving man, loving God, loving man, executing justice on a human plane in the stead of God. And there we find some really strange things, quite honestly. And to say I understand all the whys and wherefores about some of these laws, I, I don't know. I just know that they made Israel unique to all the nations if they just obeyed. But we find things that are very helpful there. Things like laws on public sanitation. Yes, that's a good thing. That, that loves people, right? As opposed to some things that are going on on the West Coast where it's basically a cesspool in the sidewalks, in the streets. Because people won't enforce the public health standards. Things about property rights. You go to, go to any county, you'll see very particular things about how your property is defined. And people shouldn't abuse those lines. That belongs to you. Things like building codes. I know maybe some of us, <laughs> Josh, we might think, ah, oh, some of these building codes. Building codes are an expression of loving your neighbor. It talks about how you should you should have safety things up when you're under construction. I mean, that's a, that's a real thing. When an inspector comes on a property that you're building from scratch, you can't have, like, stairways that even don't have temporary rails up. Do you realize that came out of the, the book of Deuteronomy? Our government is infused with just, right, loving things that show compassion and show the value of human beings and how they should be treated. And then there's compassionate generosity, not from the state, through the church, through individuals. And if there's anything that is, I, I believe that as God has blessed us financially as a country, we are a generous country, no matter what you may hear in the media. The amount of money that is given, the cause is great and small. Where does it come from? Well, it comes from Deuteronomy. God's law is a good thing. And we, we see in this section there's family law. Laws about how to live at peace with one another. Resolving re disputes. 
This is not about us setting up a utopia. It's about God understanding the evil heart of man and saying, there needs to be some boundaries, there needs to be some rules, there needs to be some ways that we can live in peace with each other. And over and over again, he says, obey these things. It will go well for you. The third sermon, children have never been good at listening to their elders, but they have never failed to imitate them. What we find in all of this last section is that in spite of the good start, in spite of the the good prospects, in spite of the promises of blessing, there is still a responsibility, there's still the sin nature, there's still the expectation that you have to step up in every generation and make it your own. And unfortunately, there are some roots that run through this people Israel that are predictably said, there's going to come a time for failure. In spite of all that you've heard, in spite of all that you're ascending to, you still have some of your generational sins that are going to come and trip you up. And God's not surprised by that. Matter of fact, Moses isn't surprised by that. He kind of he kind of says quite a bit about it, that he says, yeah, I, I, I've been pastoring you people for a long time. I kind of know how you roll. This is where we find the statement of the Palestinian covenant. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you. From there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. This isn't their generation. That's another generation. That's a predicted generation somewhere down the corridor of time. Not even in the Old Testament. This is the foreshadowing of of Jeremiah's prophecy of of national repentance, of national salvation, of a time when Israel yet, as we talked about in Daniel, is yet to be gathered back in that land of promise. They will yet have all the borders established. They will yet put into place this kind of obedience that, that Deuteronomy is instructing them to walk in. What does it mean when it circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live? It's, it's talking about a deep and lasting salvation. One that still is yet to come. One where Israel will look on the one whom they pierced and say, my Lord and my God, my Messiah. In chapters 27 and chapter 28, this didn't actually happen, but it was prospectively called for ahead of time and it says kind of this really cool thing it says when you get into land we cross over there's a couple mountains over there and what i want you to do is split six of the tribes on the one mountain and six of the tribes on the other one of the mountains is to recite the curses of this covenant because remember this is a conditional covenant god says basically if you obey you get lots of good things If you disobey, you get lots of curses. And the curses aren't just garden variety curses. These are curses worse than God cursed pagan nations. Again, the holiness of God here to say, look, with great privilege comes great accountability. Great accountability. He says, 
you're going to hate life. You're going to be so miserable. You're going to be under siege. You're going to do unhuman kind of things like eat your children. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the depths of where that could go? That God says that's the kind of curse will bring. Curses of madness and inhumanity. Well, in this ratification of the covenant, there is an altar to be set up. Then there's the acceptance of the covenant. These are the oaths that the people take and say, yes, we will obey. We will do this. In verse 47, God kind of puts the heavy, and he says, of chapter 28, says, Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things. Man, isn't that interesting? God's not just looking for road obedience. Therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord shall send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and the lack of all things, and he will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. Man, some heavy, heavy, heavy consequences. As we go on, we see that the institution of the Palestinian covenant, chapter 29 and 30, that there is this sense of the conditionalness of the covenant in time. You're either in the land and you're blessed, or you're out of the land and you're judged and scattered. Where's Israel right now? They're cast to the nations, right? There's been a regathering, if we can say those are representative of what God is planning to do as he moves history forward prophetically. But there is a huge and massive influx that's yet to come in human history to bring them back to the land. From God's perspective, though, it is an unconditional covenant. That is, he will fulfill it ultimately. That's what the... The new covenant tells us to, chapter 29, verse 20, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. What Moses is basically saying is, we have everything that pertains to life and godliness. God was very thorough, didn't leave anything out. Turn over to chapter 30, verse 11 says for this commandment which i command you today is not too difficult for you nor is it out of reach it is not in heaven that you should say who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it nor it is beyond the sea that we should say who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it but the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it god's moved it down to the bottom shelf for everybody it's right there. He's not asking you to be some kind of spiritual genius. And then we see Moses in verse 19. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. In chapters 31, 34, quickly, we have the transition of the covenant mediator, Moses to Joshua. In chapter 31, just read this is really cool but in verse 9 and following Moses says this new law this new book I've just written it's also going to be kept in the ark Deuteronomy had its own place in the ark of the covenant and it says every sabbatical year every seventh year at the feast of booths the whole nation should gather and listen to this book read it wasn't just that Israel didn't let the land rest do you realize what a safeguard it would to be to them every seventh year to read this book publicly, be reminded of their responsibilities. 
even in the midst of their, their, their wanderings and their, their idolatries, if they just even just done that. Chapter 32, Moses is told to write a song. In verse 31, I, this verse I just had to, to write down. Chapter 31, verse 26. Take this book of the law, place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may remain there as a witness, next word, against you. For I know your rebellion and your stubbornness. Behold, while I am still alive with you today, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more than after my death? Man, do you think Moses kind of knew that generational sin of stubbornness and being stiff-necked and hard of heart to want to comply with God? And this whole song in verse 32 is not not too great because he basically says... Yeah, it's not going to go well. I don't see the future going perfectly here because you just haven't dealt with some of the hard issues you have. And then, just to wrap up, the scarlet thread of Deuteronomy, Moses as a type of Christ, uniquely, and that's why Moses was judged so severely, because he broke another type. Striking the rock, the rock was, was Jesus in the wilderness that brought forth living water. Struck once, not struck twice. He broke a type. That's a big deal in the Bible. And even though I pleaded and appealed to God more than once, God says, stop talking to me about it. I've already decided. You're not going to go in. I'll let you see it from a distance. You will not go in and pass in for one act of disobedience. Holiness of God. But Moses is a tremendous person. He's the meekest man. He knew God face to face. He, he's the only person in the Old Testament that held the roles of prophet, priest, and ruler king. Basically not a king, but he was a ruler. He was the one that made decisions and judgments among the people. So in essence, he was a ruler. Unique, unique person. He was one whose life was in peril as a child. He was one who was rejected by his brethren. Tremendous, tremendous. Revered among the Hebrew people, Moses. And then, as we started this, the forgiveness and the restoration of sinful people by a covenant-keeping God. Wow. That's a, that's a big scarlet thread, isn't it? That God is the God of second chances, and third, and fourth, and fifth. And ultimately, even in spite of us, he is going to do a wondrous work to change the heart. You know, in conclusion, turn to Psalm 90, because... I think there's something very poignant about Psalm 90. And the reason, why are we going to Psalm 90 to finish this message, Brian? Well, because if you read it, the subtitle is A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. This is Moses' psalm. I think it's one of the most amazing psalms in the book. And basically talks about the transitoriness of human life, but the way God can make it worthwhile. We have heavy words. The word fury shows up twice. We've been consumed by thine anger, and by thy wrath we have been dismayed. I mean, I think, I think this is a later psalm where, where Moses is looking at what has just happened over the past almost 40 years. You see my, my mathematics there? If there were 500,000 adults over 20 that had, that had to die during that 40-year period of time, that works out to 34 funerals, 35 funerals a day. Can you imagine the constant 
acquaintance with death as they just wandered around and around the wilderness waiting to kill time. I think there is some hope here. Verse 13, do return, O Lord. How long will it be? And be sorry for thy servants. O satisfy us in the morning with thy loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days thou hast afflicted us in the years we have seen evil. Let thy work appear to thy servants and thy majesty to their children. What just happened in the book of Deuteronomy? God's majesty appeared. What happened as they conquered the land? God's majesty appeared. What even happened as God kept his word of judgment? God's majesty appeared. Show it to your children. And let the favor of the Lord of God be upon us. And do give permanence to the work of our hands. Who's Moses speaking about? Do confirm for us the work of our hands. Just confirm, give permanence to the work of our hands. I think he's speaking representatively of the generation that was judged that wouldn't go in. Let there be something lasting, if not for us. Let it be for our descendants. What a wonderful benediction. There's a blessing in, I think it was chapter 32, tribe by tribe, Moses blesses all the people, prepares them, speaks well for them. How much is it on us as parents, if you're a parent, that we want blessing to be on our kids and our grandkids? Even in spite of us. That's the heart of Moses. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for this wonderful book, this book of order, of holiness, of righteousness, of compassion, of love, of faithfulness, of covenant keeping, in spite of who we are from time to time. In spite of the fact that we, we all struggle with our own besetting sins. We can look at Israel and we can say they're, they're stubborn, they're stiff-necked, they're just unrepentant, unyielding. But what are our sins, Lord? What, what do we have to kill in crucifying the flesh that we not hand it down to our kids? What will they have to fight as they take on their own giants? We pray, Lord, your blessing on the young people in this room, for those that are young parents, yet to be parents, yet to be married, that you would pour out a blessing, you would pour protection and provision and a fear of you as they walk in this evil world. Help them to stand out as lights in the midst of a dark place. We ask it in Christ's name.